Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333 2020 401 and join the debate. Hello and a very good Sunday morning to you. I'm Ali Bally. This is Scotland's talking on the programme this morning. I'm asking if you still have confidence in Scotland's hospitals following the death of a child at the Queen Elizabeth in Glasgow, which was linked to pigeon droppings. One of the top NHS bosses is telling Scotland's talking it is safe. I wouldn't say that if I didn't believe it to be true. I looked the medical director in the eye and her principal concern is patient safety and I believe her. There have been a string of incidents and health scares at the so-called super hospital. So are you reassured by the announcement of a review of how it was built and how it's run? Also on the programme today, after a drugs investigation at one Scottish high school, a Tory MSP wants to send in the sniffer dogs. So I would call on the police and the local authority to seriously consider uh, random drug sweeps of all the senior schools. Is that a good move? Tell us what you think. And have you ever gone to the aid of someone in distress? We're going to hear Donald's story of how a stranger saved his life. If you read the statistics about the survival rate for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, it's something like 20 or 30%. I don't know how. How do you thank somebody for saving your life? Well, our chief reporter, Hope Webb, gave him the chance to say thank you. And you can listen to that, how, how that happened fairly shortly. This is Scotland's Talking. If you'd like to join us, here's the number, 0333 2020 401. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. So Scotland's Talking, kicking off today. Have you lost faith in Scotland's biggest hospital? Health Secretary Jean Freeman confirmed during the week that an infection linked to pigeon droppings was a contributing factor in the death of a child after the birds had infested part of the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. There was also an elderly patient who caught it, but the death was judged to be unrelated. Now, this is the latest in a series of health scares and incidents at the so-called super hospital. Jane Freeman has announced a review looking at how it was designed, how it was built and the way it's been run since it opened in 2015. But she told Rob Waller there is absolute focus on patient safety. There has been this uh, incident uh, in terms of the cryptococcus infection. Before that, we had an issue in terms of uh, water and drainage and there have been other uh, issues as well. So what we need to be sure to do is to look then and say, let's look at this building from its design, through its build, through its commissioning, to its maintenance, and identify where are the issues that need to be addressed to try and ensure we don't continue to have incidents, uh, and where are the lessons that we need to build in to any future design and build of new healthcare facilities in Scotland. As somebody who works every day at the Scottish Parliament, which has had its problems with pigeons as well, you'll know that that's a, that's a very difficult problem to crack. It is a very difficult problem. Um, you know, pigeons are there, um, and we sometimes feel like we've got a lot of them in Scotland. Um, the board had already done a number of, uh, taken a number of steps in terms of anti-pigeon uh, uh, settling uh, devices. We've seen those, um, you know, where you you change uh, what is uh, on top of walls and so on and so forth. Uh, This particular incident um, appears to have uh, originated from one of the plant rooms on the roof where there was no visible to the naked eye 
uh, area where pigeons could have entered. They have, by doing smoke tests and others, identified a very, very tiny gap where pig uh, pigeons may have entered uh, and obviously then left ex excrement. And then how could that have got through from the 12th floor, top of the building, to the particular wards where the two patients affected were? Uh, were. Um, and that is um, a, a long piece of work because the ventilation systems are closed systems. And there's no obvious means by which it did that, but they are still working to try and be sure um, of what that might have been, because that obviously then is a lesson about uh, how you check elsewhere. Health Secretary Jean Freeman talking there to Rob Waller for Scotland's Talking. Rob also spoke to NHS Scotland's clinical director, Professor Jason Leach, who insists it is safe. So we're standing now at the biggest new hospital build in Europe for decades. Uh, 1,700 individual rooms, over 2,000 beds on this physical site, and there have been a number of facilities and estates issues in this building since it opened three years ago. And I think it's correct that the Cabinet Secretary today has suggested that we review the facilities and estates in the round, rather than just focusing on the single issue that's happened. There have been some issues around the water and the drains and then this infestation challenge of the last couple of weeks. And some external assurance, I think, would do us no harm. One, to learn for Glasgow, but two, to learn for the rest of the country. So the, the knowledge is changing all the time, and we're building new hospitals all the time. We're building one in uh, Edinburgh. We're building, we've just built one in Dumfries. So we need to be sure that we're learning all the lessons we can from these challenges. Because I imagine in your role, you'd be very upset if you began to think that people had lost confidence in this place. I think it's one of the most important elements of my role, the medical director's role of this building, is to assure the public the local public and those who use this hospital in the national services that it offers for the whole country, that this hospital is safe today. And I wouldn't say that if I didn't believe it to be true. I looked the medical director in the eye today and her principal concern is patient safety, and I believe her. But questions are being asked about whether the drive for efficiency has now gone too far, and is it costing lives? The Scottish Tories came up with figures showing £900 million maintenance backlog in the Scottish National Health Service. Miles Briggs is their Shadow Health Secretary and he spoke to Kerry-Anne Doherty for Scotland's Talking. I think it's a wider issue. We need to look towards what has actually got us to this point. Um, a state-of-the-art new facility shouldn't be having these issues and so there's clearly answers around that. But what is clear is actually when you look at um, health boards maintaining their build but also um, in terms of this scandal, how we've allowed a situation where our hospital estate has been compromised and infections being taken place is a bigger issue. And I think it's multifaceted in both um, how a new building's been allowed to deteriorate, but also how we've not had staff in place to actually highlight that and make sure that there's an ongoing maintenance. You know, these buildings are huge facilities and need to be permanently maintained. And it's quite clear that we need to have a look at how that's actually been undertaken, both in Glasgow, but also across the wider NHS estate as well. Does it surprise you it's happened at a new hospital? It's an issue we've, I've been highlighted and Scottish Conservatives have been looking at for some time now because our NHS estate um, does have a backlog of maintenance. Um, in terms of acquired infection in hospitals, we're 
quite clear that it's there's not a pattern necessarily between old and new build, but where we've seen problems has actually been within new buildings, new state-of-the-art facilities like the Queen Elizabeth. So it's quite clear that we need to look at this and see what sort of ongoing maintenance and checks are taking place across our NHS uh, to make sure that this never happens again, because it's quite clear that there's been a backlog and that these issues have not been properly um, looked into. And so we need to make sure we now get answers on that and make sure that we move forward to a position where our NHS makes sure that our NHS is absolutely fit for purpose and clean and safe for patients and those who work in it. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde told us it's important to recognise that the staff at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital provide excellent care to many thousands of patients admitted every year and that the hospital has very good clinical outcomes. It's all very well, but have you lost faith in that particular hospital? Were you due there? Or indeed, did you find the opposite, that everything was being done? Or what about any other hospital? You know, is Are you now at the stage of, will I go in there and come out with an infection or indeed will I not come out? What's your thoughts? The lines are open now, 0333 202401. Do you still have faith when you go into hospitals that uh, everything is being done to look after you? 033-2020-401 is the number. I'd like to hear your experiences particularly. If you've been in uh, that Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, let us know. Okay, let's go to Joseph on the line. Hi, Joseph. Good morning, Ali. Lovely, wonderful, beautiful, sunny morning. It looks it, yes. yes well, yes. Ali, I'm getting back to the own family when I had a, a brain injury, so I'm... I was in a, a four-room part of the hospital, the old bit, right? I was in the new bit the first night, maybe not. And the windows with two big columns coming down, Ali, were pigeons resting and nesting on the window ledges, and the nets were broken, and the, the poo was unbelievable, Ali. Mm. Now, I was in there for 10 days in that bad part, and nobody came, or nothing, nobody. I've never seen a maintenance person come up there and saying, look, we'll only get us clean. We'll leave that now, Ali. Now we'll go to the main, the new super hospital. My, my, my nephew passed away. Do you know what he passed away with, Ali? Pigeon droppings in his work, workshop. Right? They sent me down to the building, they were nesting there, and then he, he moved in there when it first practically opened. And there was no air conditioning, Ali. Mm-hmm. No air conditioning for months in that hospital. And uh, he had to get a fan in the room, Ali. And then... The surprise I got was when they built the new children's hospital, the air-conditioned plant's behind that. It wasn't working. And what's behind that is a sewage plant alley. How on earth did they build these, this super hospital on top of a big sewage plant? I don't know the answer to that. I didn't know that was the case. Yes, Ali, and uh, nobody done, Ali, when I was going over. They had a big, big board in the alley, right? And it's about five, 45 big deep basins, Ali, and they run about 50 feet long, and they're churning up all that sewage alley. Now, the smell is, is unrelated, Ali. You, you would something be f- feel sick for you. And then, when you're getting through the big swing door, Ali, if that's, the wind's blowing, Ali, it's blowing right inside that. Mm-hmm. And everybody's all coming in through that big room door. And it goes up, you can smell it inside the big entrance, because it goes right up inside, Ali. A big void when you go to all the wars. And there's no ventilation, Ali. There's no windows. <laughs> there's windows, but they don't open, Ali. Mm. They don't even open in the, in the, the rooms. 
Well, it's, it's not a hospital, I have to say, that I've even been in. And, um, you know, I, I try and keep myself away from these places. Ali, well, can I make a suggestion here? It's nothing to do with the nurses and the workers. They, no. they're, they're, they're ground workers. Absolutely. The nurse, uh, the, the stop staff. blaming them. The staff is good. The staff is wonderful. They try to help you as much as they can. It's a maintenance side, Ali, is the fall down. People keep forgetting that. Stop. Don't, don't know about the nurses and the carers and the, the things and all that. And they do a wonderful job as, as much as possible, Ali. It's a maintenance side. Who, who, who is it from the top, Ali, down is not getting these people to go around and inspect these people? You don't inspect them once a year, Ali. You should be going around there every week to make mm, sure that. To make sure, yeah. And, and I, was, I was told that guy's when Tim said, oh, it's only a wee gap in the wall. But <laughs> where is a wee gap in the wall, Ali? That guy, and, uh, the air conditioning got thrown into a hospital yep. and bringing all that, blowing all that in. As I said, Ali, my nephew died with it, and in his workshop, there was a, a, a thing broken up, up upside through the ceiling, and they were dropping all that pigeon drops in there, and he was breeding that in, Ali, and that's where he died with it. And actually, that hospital was with that name. But they, they put it in the emphysema, Ali, but it wasn't. It was pigeon droppings. Okay. That. Right, okay, Ali, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Joseph, for um, your, your thoughts there and your comments. Irene's here as well. Irene, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. What's your thoughts then? Uh, my thoughts are that I went into hospital to the Queen Elizabeth on the 20th of December, had an operation in my elbow because I, sh- I broke it, came back out, went back in, went back over to A&E on the 4th of January because it didn't, it started bleeding and there was a dreadful smell in the Queen Elizabeth for 10 days. They told me they would need to cut it all away and give me a skin graft and was transferred to the Royal. I'm out now with four different antibiotics. I don't know when I'll get off the, after, the antibiotics, but I want to know how the bug got in there in the first place. So th- did they actually say, were you actually told by the doctors that this was an infection you'd got into your had got into the wound? Is that what you're saying? Yes, and they didn't know how it got there. When I originally broke my elbow, there was no wound at all. Right until I get cut in the Queen Elizabeth. And that's where the problem started? Started then, yes. So what is the... I mean, I've no doubt you've asked for explanations. Are you just not getting them? Uh, at the moment, I only get out of the Glasgow Royal on Wednesday. I'm trying to get my head round everything. Right. So what you thought was a straightforward break on the, on your elbow, which is, I would imagine would be fairly painful... Yeah. Four operations and a skin graft later, I've still got like scaffolding on my elbow. What would the treatment have been had you not got this infection? Do you know? Would it just been fairly? It would have just been straightforward. The elbow would have, you know, got back to normal. Right. And have you asked the, the doctors and the consultants for an explanation? They just, just shrug their shoulders and say they don't know. But hopefully you're on the men now, or is, it, or is the infection well, still not cleared up? Yeah, I'll go back to the Glasgow Royal next week to get to see, the, to see about the skin graft, and then I think it could be another four to six weeks before the scaffolding comes off the elbow, and I'll find out then what exactly is happening. So you're getting the skin graft because they've had to cut away the, at yeah. the infection, and you've got the infection because... I broke my elbow in the first place. Mm. Well, obviously, as you say, it's still very um, early days for you yet, so hopefully you are on the road to recovery and they get it sorted out. Irene, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, thanks.
So there's Irene, who's um, went into hospital on the 20th of December and is still sitting with scaffolding on her elbow because she's got an infection which seems to have been um, given to her in hospital. Uh, your thoughts, Treble 3 one not necessarily concentrating just on uh, Queen Elizabeth. If you've got, uh, you know, a, a lack of faith, as I would think Irene would have now, she wouldn't feel, um, tell, uh, you know, she's got that situation of her, she doesn't know what's ahead of her. And uh, because of the infection that she's, she's um, picked up, if you'd like to comment or indeed have a story, then here's the number, 33 you're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. And here's one that comes in on social media. You can get in touch that way as well if you've got a comment. A text number 61054. Start your message with Ali. Morning, Ali. Having just spent a few nights in our very, very new hospital in Dumfries, my experiences mirror much of what other folks say. The clinical and domestic staff are fantastic. They can't do enough for you, but seem to me to be always rushing around the place. This care and attention did appear to be very much all-absorbing. 12, 13-hour shifts with hardly a break wouldn't suggest to me that it's a good way to ensure patient care and or the health of the staff themselves. Something does seem very wrong. Being no expert, I don't know what the problem is, is it all down to budgets and targets? Perhaps there needs to be a shift in where the money goes with more being diverted to staffing. Perhaps the pharmaceutical costs are too high. Uh, what do they tell us? According to this uh, person here, you can buy paracetamol for 25 pence or so, whilst a prescription for similar would cost you about 10 quid. Yes, thank you for that. Thanks for your comments. Uh, let's go to Anne-Marie. Hello, Anne-Marie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ali. Good. What's your thoughts on this then? Um, I just feel that uh, where where we fall down is the lack of cleanliness within the hospitals itself. My elderly neighbour, just in the last couple of weeks there, her 80-year-old husband had to go into hospital and she... He was in for a few days, and every day that he was in, she went, when she went to visit him, on day one, she took him a cake, um, and there were some crumbs had fell from the, onto the floor. And for five days, the crumbs and also a stain remained around the bed where he was lying. She had to clean the James's bed, her husband's bed, um, and I just think it's down, she said every day to the staff who were on, you know, there's there's a stain there, there's mm-hmm. crumbs there. I'm concerned for my husband. He's got he's got a chest infection or whatever. Um, but for five days that remained that remained the at that location. So really? where so, are the cleaning staff? Yeah. And this was at this was at Heer Myers Hospital in East Cobride. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I just feel as though the whole problem is down to the lack of cleanliness within the hospitals itself, Ali. I just wonder so, if some, somebody's saying, well, under that bed, you know, it's down to, well, it only needs it once a week. And that, that mm. really isn't good enough, is it? No, it's not. Um, and I've had personal incidents myself where my husband, my sister was in hospital with a severe infection. She ended up um, taking the 
ended up with a huge infection, which, and every day when I went in, there was blood stains on the on the, the floor. And every day I would end up going to the hospital staff and saying, can this not be clean? She has an infection. Mm-hmm. So this, this surely this should be a sterile area. But I just feel as though it's where we lost the old matrons, um, where they would check things like that. We don't seem to have that. And the nurses are busy enough doing what they are doing. Um, where is who's actually in charge? What, do we not have enough cleaning staff? Or why are the hospitals so dirty that we've got these constant problems? So it's, it, that's when it comes down to the crunch of it all, doesn't it? Wh- wh- yes. wh- who has decided? And we've got to remember that the, these hospitals fall under different health boards, and the health boards make those decisions. And that mm-hmm. the, you know they, they're just saying, well, we can cut back on the clean and maintenance contract here, or, or we're paying. To, somebody comes in and looks at the figures and says, you know, with an accountant's head on, right? We only need these cleaners, and uh, we want that cut back to X amount of pounds. Uh, and we only need these cleaners uh, twice a week instead of every day, uh, as you know they used to be in those days that you're talking yeah. about, when matron I- would be inspecting the 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 floors and expecting inspecting the sheets and making sure everything was pristine. Just too much yeah. pressure, maybe too much pressure yeah. on the staff. I I definitely would agree with that, and I think we'll never get out of this this situation unless um, somebody is there. Um, to oversee the general cleaning because that just seems to be something that is definitely lacking and I'm sure other people have witnessed it a lot when they go into hospitals Mm -hmm. to visit their loved ones but until we sort that out I don't think we'll ever resolve the issue of people going in with simple procedures and ending up like one of the last callers there with with infection and which leads to other costs within the NHS of course it does yeah yeah so uh, then you know it, it's not it's counterproductive because they end up they end up spending more money on something that the pa- the patient never went in with in the first place. So, um, but that's just my thoughts. That's your experience. Thank you very much indeed, Anne Marie. Let's go to Catherine. Catherine, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Ali. Good morning. What's your experiences then? Well, like your previous caller, I'm also concerned um, about the kind of. Um, the hospital. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that it was built near a sewage plant in the first place, like your first caller mentioned. Mm-hmm. But um, where, it, where it's actually built, it actually creates a huge wind tunnel. Um, and the built, even when it's not windy elsewhere. And in April last year, my mum was getting off the bus, and the driver said to her, "You'd better watch now." But she was actually totally blown off her feet, right across the concourse, fell onto her left side. And she had a huge bruise along the length, at the length of her thigh. Now, we went into the hospital to report it, and nobody even bothered to take her details or fill in an accident report form. And uh, she ended up, um, as I say, quite quite badly shaken with it all. But we found out later that, that it's happened several times and that a man actually crashed into one of the bus state, you know, the... The, um, the bus shelters. The, the, the bus shelter, uh-huh. So, so fiercely that it actually smashed it. Um, and, and so th- th- there's lots of concerns about the whole hospital. And I fell off the actual... The, the, the pavements are very, very high because of where the buses are. And I actually fell off there a, a few months ago. I mean, I've got a walking stick, mind you, but, and I'm not that, that steady on my feet. But um, it, it's just, it just seems to be a catalogue of errors. The cleanliness and the toilets are shocking. But I'm also concerned about the clinical care. I had to attend the hospital with my mum 
um, in December um, to shoot to kill in Glasgow. And we were near a pharmacy at the time, and the pharmacy said she needed to be seen urgently. Um, it was a Saturday evening. We went to the... Um, she, she said, Ian, you'll probably be quite busy. I'll write you later for the out-of-hour service. Now, we went down to the out-of-hour service at 6 o'clock to find out it had been closed at 5 o'clock in, in the evening. Um, and so we, we went to the reception, and the receptionist says, oh, that's fine, just go through to A&E. And I said, right, can I, my mum was in a wheelchair because she, she couldn't walk, she was so bad. And I said, can I, can I try, can I go walk right through the hospital? She says, no, you can't. You've actually got to get out and walk around the building. Now, the pavements were tri- double and triple parked with cars. I had to actually go out on the road to take my mum round and go right round the outside of the hospital. And the, the longest shot is that we, we went in and the, um, the, the, the lady was lovely at the, at the desk initially. And she said, that's fine. Um, although that's closed, go and take a seat. And as she has in our see you, she said, it's a pity you've not got a, um, a referral letter from a GP because you would go, so your mum would go right through to the acute assessment unit. And uh, what happened was we, we had to wait then for the triage nurse to see us. But I found out later pharmacists can't refer to any, right. um, right. and they also don't take the the. the um, they also can't refer to the, the acute assessment unit. And so we. we, we so what, how long? Us, how long did you have to wait? Sorry, push it on oh, here, but. All right, over twelve and a half hours it was. Twelve from, from and when a half. We were at her. Well, we, she, the, 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 the nurse would not actually let us be seen in that hospital. We had. She told us to go to the Victoria or go to the RAH, and we had to go to another hospital. So you're and in, host- you're in hospital and they tell you to go uh-huh. somewhere else? Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And my mum was really serious well. Her diastolic pressure had fallen to 40 and the nurse was arguing with me that that was OK. I and just, I just hope, I hope, Catherine, that uh, Health Secretary Jean Freeman is listening to this because this is, she's talking about um, a, a review, etc. Um, and I think it's people like you that she should and her team should be speaking to and getting their experiences. Thank you very much indeed for your call. O treble three twenty twenty four oh one. You can also text six one oh five four. Start your message with Ali. Scotland's talking the podcast. If you have just joined us, a very good morning to you. It's 11 minutes before 11. Uh, we'll be asking fairly shortly what you think about sending sniffer dogs to search our secondary schools for drugs. That's uh, a proposal that's been put forward. More about that coming up. Uh, I look forward to your comments on that as well. Sniffer dogs into schools now. What do you think? Um, also, would you ever go to the aid of someone in distress? That's coming up as well. I'll tell you a story about that all coming up on Scotland's Talking. At the moment, we're talking about the safety in hospitals and how safe you feel. And it's on the back of the scandal at Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow as, as well. I'm getting some calls coming in uh, with relating to, to some stories. Linda, how are you? Oh, well, I'm a bit better than what I was, but I was a patient in the Queen Elizabeth and I got a really bad infection, and I've asked straight out, I asked one of the nurses one day, could this be something to do with my operation? She says, well, I'm no a doctor, I don't know. But I did ask my consultant four or five times, Has this, have I picked up this infection from my operation? And I still didn't get an answer. Really? Was your consultant, do you think, avoiding the answer? Well, it's, well, that's what I said to my hubby. I said, they're no going to admit it. He was avoiding the answer. I mean, I've never had an infection like that in my life. 
It was that bad. I had to have a shower. I was been sick in the toilet at the same time, and I'd actually to have a shower and wash. I had to tell my husband and my son not to use the same bathroom as me. Right. And I've never been as in as cold a hospital. I was in the old part, but I could see the pigeons and that. The tea. But, I mean, I thought of what I went in. They're no use sitting in, like, heavy house coats and things, because usually our hospital's warm. So normally that's the, the case, isn't it? Everybody says, oh, and it's so They were warm. actually asking patients if they wanted blankets. That's how cold it was. Really? They were giving us blankets to put round about ourselves. And, and are the, you on the road to recovery now, then? Well, I'm, I'm better than what I was. I'm using two lots of antibio. I actually got an appointment one of the times. I got a phone call. I waited in weeks for results of a scan, and they kept saying it'll be another fortnight, it'll be another fortnight, and I finally got word to go, and I got a phone call to go to the outpatient department, and when I went, I got told my consultant was in holiday after training from Kilmarnock. And that's what I said to and, and, and they must have known he was going to be on holiday. Oh, they they yeah, must have known. Absolutely. Because, he, as I say... I marked it in the calendar and I said to my husband and I started thinking, well, we've found something wrong when I have to go and see him as quick. And I'd actually to go up to the, the ward I was in. They said they would, see, they would see me up there. And when the nurse came back, she says, I don't know how I'm going to tell you this. And I thought, well, it must be bad news. And she says, is in holiday. And I thought, now how can a big place like that give your phone call and tell you you have to come up and see them the next week and then find out that he's in holiday. Organised chaos, Linda. Organised really chaos, is, uh-huh. yep, yep. Thank you very much indeed for your call. Thanks for calling in with that, uh, your experience there. Uh, Sarah's on the line. Hello, Sarah. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, what's your experience then? Um, last year, um, uh, a friend of mine an elderly lady was in the old part of the Royal Infirmary. Um, now, one of the things uh, they did say is she was only five and a half stone. They're trying to build her up. Uh, but the food that she was getting, the quality of food, I've been in lots of hospitals, the quality of food was horrendous. And main meals, etc. they would have fitted on um, a side plate easily with lots of room. Um, also, and I think she was very cold, obviously being so thin. Um, and one of the things on a Friday afternoon, um, I asked, for more blankets for her, and I was told she couldn't have any because there was no laundry service until the Monday, um, which was disgraceful. Mm. So she was wearing two house coats and two pairs of um, bedroom socks, etc. Um, she was frozen, and the food I ended up bringing her up sandwiches every single day. That's not what you should. I mean, you go into hospital to get well, and I, I, I've said on this program before. I think people expect too much in a hospital of food. Um, you know, you expect, well, some people do, and they've been on this program saying um, they expected better. It's a hospital, it's not a hotel, but you would yeah. expect to, to be a certain level, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been in lots of hospitals, I really have, but I've never seen um, the quality of food in my life. I wouldn't have fed that to the cat. I mean, for example, mints, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> How appetising. Um, a plate of grey mints. I mean, and it was tiny. The portions were tiny. Um, I felt so sorry for her. She was frozen the whole time. She really was. Strange. But the thing that worries me is that when these things are um, 
inspected. I'm assuming that the staff know that they're going to get inspected and the quality goes up for that one day, you know. That's what worries me. Mm-hmm. I think definitely if you if you wouldn't eat that food yourself, then you shouldn't be serving it to other people. Very true. And the patients are there to get better, not to to be starved, to be cold and to pick mm. up infections. Sarah, thank you very much indeed for your call as well. We're working our way towards the top of the hour and to the news. And after the news, uh, we're telling a story which is um, a leave in the main to our chief reporter, Hope Webb, who's been following this story, a, a, a gentleman who collapsed from a heart attack. And um, we hear the story that this person came to his rescue, got a hold of... Uh, the defibrillator that was in the area and used it. He'd never used a defibrillator in his life before. And that would frighten me. I don't know about you. So would you go to the rescue? Would you just take the defibrillator and follow instructions? Seemingly, it talks you through it. So we'll be hearing about that and asking, would you go to the aid of someone in distress? Or are you one of those that would just walk around and walk away? And also, as I mentioned earlier, quite keen to get your views on the sniffer dogs, the suggestion that sniffer dogs should be used to search our secondary schools for drugs. Uh, the suggestions being made after two pupils were treated for the effects of taking drugs in Dumfries. And then this week, there's been the uh, situation in the school in Fife as well. So your thoughts on that one. So coming up on Scotland's Talking. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. Here's a question for you. Would you ever go to the aid of someone in distress? You know, perhaps when you pass by the scene of an accident or see someone who's been victim of crime. Would you just walk past? Here's an interesting story. Uh, joining us now is our chief reporter, Hope Webb. Hope, good morning to you. So what what's the, the background behind this story then? Well, this is one of my favourite stories I have ever done. It's so lovely. I've had lots of messages on the back of it and I think it's nice to just not talk about Brexit for a little while. But it all started with an email that I got through from the Scottish Ambulance Service introducing me to this man called Donald Scott. Now, Donald Scott is 47 years old. He lives in Edinburgh, has two young daughters and lived a a relatively healthy lifestyle until last August. He was on his way to uh, meet his friends for a fringe show and had walked through Waverley train station. Now, that's where Donald's memory pretty much goes blank from then on. We do know that he collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. Obviously, as you would imagine, he doesn't remember that. He doesn't know what happens. When he did wake up in hospital in intensive care a week later, he was told that that day he was saved by police officers and one member of the public who had used a defibrillator on him. Now, Donald was desperate to find this member of the public, this stranger that had come to his help and used key life-saving skills to really save his life. So I got in touch with him and decided that it would be a good idea to take him back to where this all really began, Waverley train station, and get him to tell us a little bit about his story and why meeting this stranger was was so important to him. I was on the, the way to meet some friends uh, for a night out at the start of the Edinburgh Festival and I had taken a shortcut through Waverley Station uh, to head up to the old town uh, when I had this cardiac arrest. I've got no recollection uh, of the events at all uh, until I woke up and 
the ERI and intensive care units a week later. So the whole event is a mystery to me and I've been trying to track down the people uh, who were involved in saving my life that night. What would you like to say to them? I'd just like to thank them from the bottom of my heart for saving my life. I, I've got two young children, two daughters, Emma and Anna, who are 10 and 7 years old. Uh, and you know, without the support of the ambulance service and the British Transport Police, they saved my life. And the hospital, uh, everybody at the ERI, uh, I might not have been around to see them grow up. Excellent story. Really interesting. But what happened next, Hope? Well, I mean, it's been six months since August and Donald is recovering well, but there is one question that has remained on his mind this whole time. He really wants to know who it was that saved his life. So after that, we put an appeal out on the radio to try and trace that person. And I think it took maybe two or three hours and I got a phone call to the newsroom. It was a gentleman called David Fairgrave that had picked up the phone to call our newsroom and said to me, look, Hope... I think I am the man that used the defibrillator on Donald and I couldn't believe it and neither could David because to be perfectly honest David wasn't sure whether Donald had survived that day. Right. He used the defibrillator on him and then paramedics got there and they rushed him away. So for the last six months David has wondered whether Donald had survived so to hear him on the radio I think he jumped out of his seat at the, t- at the time <laughs> he heard it. So of course what was the next thing that we did we brought them back to Waverley again together and to get them to meet for the very first time and boy was it emotional the two of them are quite you know soft-spoken lovely men you know so it wasn't a kind of crying sobbing reunion but you could tell that they were both desperate to to meet one another donald couldn't really get his words out to be perfectly honest he did say how on earth do you thank someone that saved your life i can never say enough really um so speechless maybe is is the right words for them and i have a little bit of audio that i'm going to play you of the the moment they met and what was important for donald as well was that david was able to fill in some of the key details of what did happen that day and and really bring him some closure i gave you i think it was five five shots mm-hmm. you in the fifth one you jumped mm-hmm. and we got a response and right after that the uh, ambulance crew they turned up and took over and mm-hmm. they them. So where about was I in relation to this? Yeah, it's the bench down here. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's so we're standing pretty near to pretty where? Near, yeah, yeah. And what's it like to see Donald Great. after Superb. the last time you saw him? I'm looking so well because oh, I thought he was not going to recover. You know, so, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. that was, and uh, the ambulance crew just say that the, the, you're responsive and you're, mm-hmm. you're breathing and there's hope, hope for you. It all started off with the defib, CPR, and just people stopping and trying to assist a, a fellow colleague, you know. And Donald is, I don't know if you know this, a dad of, of two young girls, yes, and yes, it's very clear yes, yes. in saying to me that if it wasn't for you and that defib, yeah. you know, they wouldn't have a dad. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's remarkable. And the medics, they told you, didn't you, that actually if it hadn't played out exactly as it had played out, it really wouldn't have had the, the result it did. So if you read the statistics about the survival rate for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, it's something like 20 or 30 percent. You know, so I'm very, very fortunate to be in that 20 or 30 percent. I don't know how, how do you thank somebody for saving your life? <laughs> yeah. You've already, already done it. And it's, <laughs> yeah. An amazing story, but you know, with these defibs being um, available now across the country, um, can you operate one, Hope? Well, to be perfectly honest, before this story, I didn't know a lot about defibrillators and, and how you work them. 
but I've learned that they all come with easy instructions that you follow so anyone can use a defibrillator and anyone can save a life. I know for a lot of us, if we were to see somebody collapse or in a, a medical situation, you might be quite scared to, to come forward. I know I would I would maybe think mm. that I don't have the right skills or, or confidence to, to take this on and would be maybe worried about making the situation worse. But one thing that I was told by the charity St John Scotland, which have been responsible for introducing hundreds of defibs across Scotland in the last few years that you cannot do any harm you can only do good the statistics as Donald said for out of hospital cardiac arrests are shocking uh, so really if you run to somebody's aid you can only help this situation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we got in touch with St John Scotland after this story obviously and weirdly in a, in a funny little turn of events it just so happens that the defibrillator used on Donald and Waverley was one that they had installed back in 2015 and executive director Angus Loudon was absolutely delighted to hear the positive outcome of this story. I'm also delighted that in this case the um, machine was used at Waverley station this was one of the machines that we installed in conjunction with Network Rail back in 2015 as part of the St John and the City campaign, which in Edinburgh has now installed over 120 defibrillators across the city. And the key point he wants to get across is that this story shows in practice how easy it is to use a defib. Defibrillators are actually very simple to use. They may seem complex, but actually they talk to you. They tell you what to do and they enable you to apply the appropriate treatment to the casualty. They will only shock a casualty who requires to be shocked. They won't shock where it's not necessary. Now, around 3,500 people undergo attempted resuscitation each year after an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, but currently only around 1 in 12 survive. So, like I say, you cannot do any harm. It's always better to try. There are instructions. It talks to you, actually, out loud, and you can turn up the the volume to to hear it if you're in a loud place like Waverley train Mm. station. Um, And as for Donald and, and David, after their meeting... I left them to actually go and grab a coffee together and they they both mentioned that they're really looking forward to starting what will be a brand new friendship coming out of really what was quite a a tragic and and scary situation. Indeed. And I I think what's coming out there, Hope, from you is just one thing you said there, you can't do any harm. Um, You know, you might come forward and think, there's that defibrillator, but can I use it? Because they are around the country various places, even in old phone boxes and villages and things. So, you know, it's um, it's something that um, you're given a bit of a bit of um, guidance there to, I think. Absolutely. And David had never used a defibrillator and David was able to save Donald's life. That's a point there. I mean, he mentioned to me that he adrenaline just kind of took over. He did know from previous uh, experience that they came with instructions, but he had never used one before. So he was able to to clearly follow those instructions and, and obviously save Donald's life. A cracking story. And that, that's another one there. I, I sort of felt an intake of breath when you said he'd never used one before. I thought, well, you know, if if he can do it, probably most people could do it then. Absolutely. That's the key point of this. It just shows that anyone can save a life and and be a hero like David. Excellent, Hope. Thank you very much indeed for telling us uh, all about that. And, And I think giving some guidance to people, because what would you do? Would you pass by the scene of an accident? Would you would you stop yourself and say, I can't help 
or indeed, I, I, you know, well, I don't know how to operate one of these things. They're in Hope's story. Uh, they can tell that, you know, certainly you can use them. If, if you'd like to comment on that, maybe you'd like to share your good Samaritan stories this morning, as Hope says, get away from Brexit. Here's the number, 033-2020-401. This is Scotland's Talking. Good morning. And let's go on the phone lines because uh, I just see a call coming in there. It's Ian. Hello, Ian. How are you? Ali, great, great, great yourself. Good, thank Ali, you. what an absolute star. What a great guy to do something like that. It takes a certain kind of person to do what that gentleman did. Uh, and, and no having any idea, really, what he was doing. But uh, now, I've never ever seen these machines getting used, Ali. Now, in Pennycook, we've got like eight of them. Out, outside different places. I believe that a lot of the dentists have got them because there could be a, a situation in a dentist surgery. Obviously, uh, doctor surgeries have got them as well. But there has also been the uh, things have happened, uh, maybe, <coughs> excuse me, Ali, because, because, they're in, can I, because they're no locked up, they're there for everybody to use. Yeah, that's that's what the, 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 I know. I, I hear what you're saying about them being in doctor Ali, surgeries and also dentists. Also open but... to, a wee, to a wee bit of vandalism, and yeah. Ali, that sickens me to hear anything like that. When you think of a situation that somebody's desperate for that kind of help, and and the machines no working, or things have been stolen, or something like that. Now, Ali, if I could please go back to that gentleman again that saved that man's life in the Waverley station. Surely, a situation like that. The chap should be recognised, honoured in some way, because an absolute hero, the guy. Okay, then there's a lot of people done a lot of great things in life and one thing or another, but but to change somebody's life a, uh, in an unexpected situation, just came across this quick as a flash, you're into the guy's situation, a, uh, and the guy, well, the fellow that was performing the uh, the, the needful uh, with, with the machine, Really thought that guy wasn't going to pull through, but it, it's great that hopes to manage to get them back together again. What that was you, another tremendous story. What would That's you do? What would you, you? What would you do in that situation? Would you? I, have the I would do the same as the gentleman. And yeah, probably good. you would be the same. Yeah, yeah. Give it a go now, anyway. And and you know why I would say that, Ali? Because you would like somebody to do the same for yourself. Very true. Ian, thank you very much indeed. Uh, here's one that comes in from Robert and April. Uh, my wife and I were in Greenock Town Centre. We heard a thud, a lady collapsed behind us. Uh, we administered first aid whilst my wife called for an ambulance um, and everything was well after. Thank you. Well done to you. As I said, you know, there are those who will just walk away um, and, and, you know, do nothing because they, they either fear that they would make it worse, a situation worse, or indeed um, they, they just walk away because it's nothing to do with me. Stay out of it. Yeah. Oh treble three twenty twenty four oh one. George is on the phone. Hi George, how are you? Uh, hi, how are you doing, Ali? Good, thank you. Yeah, I just I was speaking to your researcher there. Uh, uh, researcher, Mr. that's a new word for us. Been called many things, but researcher is different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you put that in your CV. <laughs> right on uh, you go, on you go. Yeah, it was uh, when I was hearing about defibrillator. Uh, Pamela Hunter of the butcher shop Hunters of King Ross had a customer who. But two years ago, uh, passed away in holiday. And it was due to the fact uh, it could have been saved if there had been a defibrillator handy. Now, Pamela was very upset about that, losing uh, such a dear friend and customer. She set up a campaign within the butchery community in Scotland. And through our hard work and our effort and the resources, 
she managed to set up a foundation at the heart of the community where they have a campaign to purchase a defibrillator to put outside butcher shops. Mm-hmm. Now, I think upwards between 13 and 40 uh, defibrillators are now in place outside butcher shops in Scotland. I remember reading this story, George. Yes, I remember hearing about it. Yeah, and uh, just on my own personal experience, I was on holiday uh, probably about 10 years ago and we were in uh, an airport in Australia and I started choking. I was eating uh, a bar of fruit and nut and I started to choke and it caught really the back of my throat. Uh, the airway staff were absolutely of, you know, they just stood and asked if I wanted a glass of water as I was turning blue. And lucky for me, there was a, a pack of uh, New Zealand rugby players. And one just, I didn't know, I was on the verge of passing out. And one just just came from the back of me. I didn't know what was happening. My feet, I'm a big guy, but I get lifted off my feet. And I just felt there's so much pressure on my chest. And then the, the piece of nut came flying out. And... Uh, uh, you know, I was just very, very lucky that one of these big, uh, uh, big uh, Kiwis decided to take upon himself, you know, to save my life because I, I was, I was definitely. My wife said you were, you were going blue, right, and you collapsed to the floor. Uh, the, the big thing for me is in schools is we don't do anything at schools. Every member, every child leaving school should have a good grasp of first aid. It's okay. You know, some people coming in and showing them once or twice, it should be part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So we've got a whole lot of school leavers leaving, and each one is fully versed in first aid. I think I think that would be another positive moving forward in this. It's another one of these li- you know life skills that they should be teaching in, in, in schools, like, you know, how to cope with money and how to cope with, with work, etc. But, you know, first aid, you're right. There, there, in fact, there's another... Um, a uh, text come in here from Ken, and he says, you know, why do we not consider first aid taught as a subject at school? Uh, yes. save, saving a life. Another thought I had is, you know, wouldn't it be great at every taxi running around the, the roads of Scotland, every taxi had a defibrillator? Brilliant be, idea. Brilliant. And the taxi drivers being able to use it. be fantastic. be fantastic. Yeah, and you, you get the, the problem is that, you know, when somebody collapses uh, and then it, it's the search for a defibrillator. Now, if you knew, for instance, that a taxi driver will always have one in his cab, mm-hmm. then everybody knows go and find a taxi. That's right, I know. Go, right. And, go and hail a black cab down and pull them in. Uh, and then you, you've got a response there, you know. So that that would be the difficulty. Unfortunately, the kind of life, uh, the, the social situation we have at the moment that people are more inclined to take photographs or bring out the video phones rather than actually go and do things you know so I think that's uh, a, a kind of a bugbear for me but uh, no certainly somebody saved my life and I know Pamela Hunter at uh, Hunters and Kuros ran an absolute wonderful campaign yeah, my, uh, as I say I remember seeing it in, yeah. in various press Great, George. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your story. Uh, once again, you can get in touch by giving us a call, 0333-202401, or you can text 61054. Start your message with Ali. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Now, do you think we should be sending in sniffer dogs to search our secondary schools for drugs? That suggestion's been made after two pupils were treated for the effects of taking drugs in Dumfries. 
Now, it's not clear whether or not the drugs were taken on school premises, but it still concerned the local Tory MSP, Finlay Carson, who's been speaking to our reporter, J- Joseph Gately, for Scotland's Talking. There is a time where the police need to uh, take enforcement action, uh, and I believe the first thing they can do is, is sniffer dogs and make sure there's no drugs in the school. And that would uh, send a clear message to, to everybody that it's simply not acceptable. Uh, I, I know the police are also working in the background, uh, making their investigations, um, and that's to be welcomed. Uh, proactive uh, work is, is, is crucial, but sometimes uh, reactive uh, is, is also crucial, and, and we need to see the police uh, take some action uh, to nip this uh, problem in the bud. Are you satisfied that enough is being done? I was somewhat relieved to understand that uh, there was no evidence that the drugs had actually been uh, distributed within the school. However, it's still very concerning. I have spoken to the police and uh, uh, tried to find out exactly what they do within the the, the schools to uh, educate on, on drug abuse. And I was pleased to hear that there's been at least 50 inputs delivered by police to schools right across the region. However, uh, when we, we see actual incidences of uh, drug uh, abuse uh, and, and pupils under the influence of drugs, uh, there needs to be some level of enforcement. Uh, so I would call on the police and the local authority to seriously consider uh, random drug sweeps of all the senior schools in the region to make sure we nip this issue in the bud. Uh, we've seen sniffer dogs being used at the local college uh, and I think they could be deployed to ensure that schools are a drug-free environment. Uh, and it would also send a clear message to all involved that the use and supply of drugs is simply not acceptable. We did approach Dumfries and Galloway Council for their comment on this, but they were having issues with their emails, so we never received a statement. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, that's Dumfries and Galloway. There was also a problem with... Uh, 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 drugs in a school in Fife this week. It's something we can't turn a, a blind eye to and say it never happens near us. Of course it does. But would this just drive the drugs somewhere else? You know, if if, if there is actual drug taking um, happening within schools, will it just mean that if, if the pupils know that uh, sniffer dogs are likely to be coming into the school, then they'll take the drugs anyway, just outside the school, in the streets or whatever. Is that really a solution? You know, I've gone on about this before, that we don't seem to come up with a solution on the drugs. We seem to go from one um, initiative to another initiative. So would this, you know, would it really be a deterrent if, if, Teenagers are going to take drugs. Will they take them anyway, whether sniffer dogs are brought into schools or not? Is there something better that can be done? What do you think? 033-2020-401 is the number. You can also text, of course. The text number is 61054. Start your message with Ali and you can email ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk. I'd like to get your your thoughts on that, if you have any, of course. But would it help any in the the drugs situation that we'll have with our teenagers? Uh, We've also been talking today, just in case you have just joined us, we've been talking about uh, the infections in hospitals. um, And this is on the back of the death of a child at Queen Elizabeth in Glasgow, which was linked to pigeon droppings. So I was asking again, do you feel safe going into hospital? 
Um, have you been in hospital asking for your stories? And um, it's, it's, we've had a few related to um, Scotland's super hospital and um, none of them really complimentary. Um, so thank you for them. Always take more, of course. Get in touch. Uh, let's go to Patricia. Hello, Patricia. How are you? Morning, Ali. I'm very well, thank good, you. Good, 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 good. Now, um, I want to talk about dirt in general. Dirt in general, right, you, go for it. You know, Florence Nightingale discovered in the 1800s that dirt was caused the death of all the soldiers rather than bullet wounds and things like that. Why do we not know that anymore? Mm-hmm. Because everywhere you go, well, I, I'm probably exaggerating a bit here, but to me, Glasgow's filthy at the moment. And... I've, I've never been a, a patient in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, but I've been there. I've never seen much uh, dirt about, but really it's it's the whole attitude towards cleanliness these days. A woman we earlier on was talking about crumbs and blood around a bed. and You know, they just don't clean up the way they used to do. I had a child 61 years ago in the old Southern General. Every single day, the beds were pulled away from the wall, Everything was cleaned behind it and everything was put back again because they were terrified of the matron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Since they've done away with matrons and and these administrators are running things, I don't think they could run a manoj, actually, to tell you the truth. There's actually a comment come in just on the back of what you're saying there. There's a comment come in just a few moments ago, which says, and it comes from Alan, and he says, I have a relative in uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital, and he had to go five days before a cleaner came anywhere near his room. By this point, his bin was overflowing, and he had complained about it from day three. So as other callers have said, says Alan, that wouldn't have happened in Matron's Day. Not and I know, all. and I know it's it's going back, and you know there will be some pen pushers in the health service saying, "Oh yeah, but that's going back in time." But we surely should be taking lessons from that to be to be in hospital in a room that's not been cleaned for five days, the bins not been emptied. Yeah. There's something wrong there, surely, well, Patricia. There's something wrong just all over the whole administration of the city because if you look at the the, the bins where I live. They're constantly overflowing. There's a, a, a food bin out. I live in a, a, a high-rise building. There's 140 flats in it. Outside of the building, there is a, a bin for food. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you can't get 140 people to obey all the rules. They don't use the bin properly. It's constantly overflowing, and it's filthy. During the, the summer, it was stinking. I have written so many emails to my local councillor about and they come and clean up and then they leave it till the next set. I mean, I could show you pictures of some of the filth that's round about. It's just the whole attitude to maintenance these days. Nothing is getting maintained, and if they haven't got any money, where is the money? Where's mm-hmm. it going? Yep, good, good points. Thank you very much indeed, Patricia. John Carr. John, good morning. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm well. Um, I'm well out doing my bit in my taxi, doing my thing. Right, your comments then? Well, Ali, as far as I'm concerned, the people of this country made an agreement with the government of this country that if they paid national insurance, they would be looked after medically. Now, it appears to me that the government has fallen back on that agreement, uh, i.e. that they can give money away to foreign aid, they can give money away to this one and that one, and 
different countries all over the world. And meanwhile, our people who have worked all their life in this country and paid into this country are suffering. They are bit by bit taking the health service away from us. Now they can blow all the whistles and call all the things and say what they like, but the fact of the matter is the people of this country, the sick people of this country, should have priority over all these other things. All these charities and all these benefits and all this money that's passed over to other countries, our people should come first, the people of our country. Now, when I sit here and listen, I'm embarrassed, Ali, to hear that people are having to wear two jackets and turns on the being clean. It's not the staff's fault, because I have personal friends who work in the hospital, and they do what they can. They work very, very hard under stressful conditions, and the reason why the stressful conditions are there is because, one way or another, they are being strangled with money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they haven't got the staff. Now, I mean, let's uh, get down to the, the nitty-gritty of this, Ali. What they need is money, and they need it invested, and they need the government need to keep to the promise that they made to the working people of this country. It is kind of pointless building a super hospital if you can't afford to run it, isn't it? Yeah, uh, totally, Ali. And uh, it sounds very strange to me that you can build this super hospital costing billions no millions, billions of pounds, and the doors can come and go when they, as they please. And it's no getting cleaned, and then you've got the health minister on saying, well, we don't know how it happened. I know how it happened because the job wasn't done right. If that had been a Marriott hotel, you wouldn't get pigeons in there. If that had been one of the big fancy places that were getting built privately, you wouldn't get pigeons in there, Ali. And you want to know something else? See the people who make the decisions on the health service. They don't use it themselves. They all use private health. So it doesn't really matter to them. None of their relatives will be lying in a corridor waiting in a doctor. John, thank you very much indeed. And now, on Scotland's Talking, time for any other business. Yeah, we've got about uh, ten minutes left. If there's something that you wanted to get off your chest this week that's been in the news or indeed happening in your town, your city, now's the time to give us a call. Here's the number, 033-2020-401. Still got a few more uh, comments coming in via social media on what we've been talking already today, the health service uh, in the main. Also one here coming in on the uh, sniffer dogs going into schools. We'll talk about that as well. But if there's something that you really want to talk about, then we want to hear from you. Got about 10 minutes to do it. Or treble three twenty twenty four zero one, or you can text your comment to 61054. Start your message with Ali. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. OK, let's catch up with some of the comments on social media. I totally agree, says Anne, with the last two callers who've been complaining and talking about commenting, not so much complaining, commenting about the money uh, to the health service, etc. And, you know, um, I agree with them. Thank you, Anne. And uh, another call that we had in there, didn't want to go on here, but just said um, we'd like to put uh, John, the taxi driver, forward for a ministerial job. Uh, He should be in the government and sorting it out. There you are, John. If you ever get fed up driving the taxi, 
stand for it. You, you, you know, you, you get the votes. Uh, another one from Liz here, talking about drugs and sniffer dogs, etc., into to schools. If classification was based on harm, alcohol and tobacco would be class A and illegal. Do you think politicians would give up their Glenmorangie and cigars? Think not. Thank you, Liz, for those few wise words. And here's one that comes says, uh, I think the sniffer dogs in schools is a very good idea. I also believe employers should have a system of blood testing. One of my relatives works in a place that do just that. Anyone who has a positive result are fired. That's a great wake-up call. Okay. I would imagine then if someone has... Uh, an illegal substance in their blood, that the, the job is such that it requires them to be 100% focused. I, I don't know, but I, I thought it was very unusual for um, blood testing to be taking place in a workplace. But uh, thank you very much indeed for, for that. Is that yet another idea? But is it an idea that's that's off the scale? Scotland's Talking, the podcast.